Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to March's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. It's been a busy month in the battery material space and there's lots to talk about. This month we've got two featured interviews with David Archer, Chief Executive of AIM Listed Savannah Resources, and with Jamie Deeth, CEO of TSX Venture Listed Graphite Developer, Eagle Graphite. And as well as that, I'll do a quick recap of all the key news stories from around the world this month. In our features section this month, we explain why we think graphite might just be the most exciting battery material for investors. As long-time subscribers will know, we've spent much of the past few months wondering about the disconnect between graphite equity performance and flake graphite prices. Insofar as graphite equities have moved in line with the rest of the battery materials sector and are down 49% year-on-year, whereas graphite prices have held up much better than most of the sector and are down only 12% over the past 12 months. When I mention graphite equities to investors, I often get a disparaging remark about too much supply potential, or hear the refrain that artificial graphite is much better for batteries. But these replies really hide a significant lack of understanding of the graphite industry by investors. A major issue here is that investors regard graphite akin to a bulk material, but it's not, it's a chemical product. If you look at an average flake graphite mine, it can produce flakes which fall into five different grain sizes. The different sizes correspond to different usage patterns. Large and jumbo flake sizes have different uses to medium and small grain sizes and tend to sell at a significant premium. On top of that, graphite from different mines will have different physical and chemical characteristics. While some of these can be optimized by processing, some of them can't, and this can render a particular mine unsuitable for a particular end use. In our graphite project evaluator, we're currently tracking 44 flake graphite projects globally. If we consider the ones that have feasibility studies or are in production, that would equate to 1.4 million tonnes per year of flake graphite concentrate production. That does sound like a lot when you consider that current flake production is of the order of 0.7 million tonnes per year. But it's not the whole story, because only about 50% of that production will be of a size that's suitable for battery applications, and flake graphite has to be processed further for use in anodes. The processing stage has, at best, a 50% recovery. So realistically, we're looking at graphite anode production of 0.3 to 0.4 million tonnes per year from all of these projects. An incremental demand could be between 0.4 and 1.2 million tonnes per annum. That really is quite an imbalance. Coupled with China's move to a net import position in flake graphite in January, we suggest it's time for investors to look a lot more closely at graphite equities. As I said earlier, it's been a big month for news, and here's a quick recap of some of the key news items that have come out. One of the most far-reaching is POSCO's extremely racy EV sales forecast for 2019. As you probably know, just over 2 million EVs were sold in 2018, which was significantly higher than many commentators were expecting. We were just waiting for the upgrades to come, and POSCO certainly didn't disappoint. They're suggesting that EV sales could hit 4 million in 2019, nearly double the 2018 level. That's quite an upgrade. Albemarle was also in on the upgrading act, taking their base case forecast for lithium carbonate equivalent demand in 2025 up to an eye-catching 1 million tonnes versus their previous forecast of 800,000. That's also a pretty big move. 
A report by the International Tin Association suggested that tin could be the next battery metal. It forecasts that the battery industry could boost tin demand by 60,000 tonnes per year by 2030. That's a significant impact on our 300,000 tonne per year market. Following the new DRC mining code announcement and the imposition of an import tax on concentrates by the Zambian government, there have been a number of shutdowns in that region, with ERG closing the Chambishi refinery in Zambia and Boss mining in DRC, which should cut 3,000 tonnes per annum of cobalt supply. Vedanta's Nchanga smelter has also cut production and Glencore has cut about 2,000 contractors at its Mutanda mines. There was a pretty big capex blowout from Namaska Lithium this month. The Canadian Lithium developer announced a 375 million Canadian dollar funding shortfall on its Wabuchi project in Quebec. While that's a big oops, it wasn't unfortunately the end of its problems. It is also going to arbitration on the termination of a supply agreement with Livent, which could lead to it having to pay back $20 million. With the fall in the stock's market value and current market conditions in the lithium sector, we think it's going to be quite difficult for the company to lay its hands on funding in a structure that will leave much on the table for equity investors. There's exciting news about a new possible solution that keeps vanadium redux flow batteries viable even in periods of high vanadium prices. It's called Renton Electrolyte and involves battery users renting vanadium under a long-term contract. This eliminates a lot of the upfront costs of the battery and turns them into operating costs, much like a royalty. We ask if this could indeed be the shape of things to come. McKinsey's Global Energy Perspectives report for 2019 suggests that there could be a two-thirds drop in battery pack costs by 2030, and it also suggests that EVs will be cheaper than internal combustion engine-powered vehicles in the early 2020s. It forecasts that EV sales can reach 100 million units by 2035, but to achieve that, about 2.4 million charging stations need to be deployed every year. It's a very positive report from a materials demand standpoint. There have been a number of M&A deals announced in the battery sector this month, of which the standout is Tesla's 218 million US dollar bid for Maxwell Technologies. Maxwell's a developer of ultra-capacitors and dry electrodes, and word on the street is that their technologies could substantially improve the energy density of Tesla's batteries. Cattles had a quite a busy February. It signed a cooperation agreement with Honda, guaranteeing a supply of about 56 gigawatt-hours of lithium-ion batteries before 2027, which could have significant global ramifications, given that it's a deal between a Chinese battery supplier and a Japanese autos manufacturer. Also, it updated plans for its German battery factory. Previously, it was targeting 14 gigawatt hours of capacity in 2021. Now it seems it's targeting 60 gigawatt hours by 2026 and could go as high as 100. It also launched China's largest energy storage system with a capacity of 100 megawatt hours at the world's first multi-mixed energy power station in Golmud. In home batteries, Shell has acquired Sonnen for an undisclosed amount. Sonnen is already a leader in the segment, and with access to Shell's balance sheet, the sky really is the limit. Siemens announced its first foray into the space with Junelight, which is launching in Germany and Austria. And finally, it's been reported that Tesla is suffering supply chain issues with batteries for its Powerwall system, although it hopes to add additional capacity in the near future. Well, that's a brief roundup of the 34 pieces of news flow we've got in the review this month. We also have 30 exploration company updates, 13 development, 22 other company updates, and 11 battery and technology updates. We're highlighting three sets of results in our drill bit section this month. The first 
is TSX-listed UEX Corporation, which had some strong nickel-cobalt results from drilling at its West Bear project in Saskatchewan, including an intercept of 4.5 metres at 2.9% cobalt and 2.1% nickel. The second is ASX-listed AVZ Minerals, which we've highlighted many times before in this section. Not content with having the world-class Roche geopegmatite at the Monono project in DRC, they've now discovered another one at Carrière de l'Est, which has lithium concentrations of 1.77% lithium oxide over at least 163 metres of thickness. The final standout exploration result of the month is ASX-listed Iron Ear, which reported results from its Rhyolite Ridge Lithium and Boron project in Nevada, US, with a 19-metre intercept grading 2098 parts per million lithium and 1.71% boron. In other exploration news this month, Walkabout Resources published a reserve upgrade for its Lindy Jumbo Graphite project in Tanzania, totaling 5.5 million tonnes at 17.9% total graphitic carbon. Kodal Minerals posted a 23% increase in the Jork-compliant resource at its Buguni project in Mali to 21.3 million tonnes at 1.1% lithium oxide, and Pinsana Metals published a resource upgrade for its Longonjo rare earth project in Angola of 240 million tonnes at 1.6% total rare earth oxide. In development news, Renascore Resources published a PFS for its spherical graphite plant at the Sivior project in South Australia, which would result in an incremental capex of 67 million US dollars. Arafura Resources published a DFS for its Nolans Neodymium Prisodymium project in Australia's Northern Territory, which supports a 23-year life of mine, producing about 4,400 tonnes a year of NDPR oxide, for a capital cost of 726 million US dollars. The big news in M&A this month is that a Chinese company, Chengtun Mining, has made a 110 million Australian dollar cash offer for ASX-listed Unzuri Copper, which is developing the Kalongwe Copper Cobalt Project in the DRC. It's been a pretty mixed bag for the lithium reporting season, with Albemarle giving a bullish outlook, but SQM more conservative and Livent positively negative. Orocobre had good results, but then guided down production on the impact of heavy rains. In battery and technology news, we'd like to flag Oxys Energy, which announced it plans to build the world's first manufacturing facility for mass production of lithium sulfur cells in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. We'd also flag an Australian-based storage startup, Jellion, which has launched a zinc-bromine battery, which it hopes to commercialise by 2021. Global EV sales for January were 153,700 units, up 87% year-on-year and a pretty good start towards POSCO's 4 million EV sales target for the year. Battery electric vehicle sales grew 143% year-on-year, and given that BEVs have bigger batteries than their plug-in peers, that could have a substantial impact on battery materials demand going forward. In raw materials trade, the big story is flake graphite, where China actually moved to a net import position in January, and it's a substantial net import position as well, at 3,800 tonnes. Interestingly, graphite prices continue to hold up despite this large amount of imported material coming in, which suggests that this is as much as a demand-led trend as it is a supply-led one. I would reiterate, having been a China watcher for many years, that we have seen this type of chart before, and they always heralded a structural shift in the relevant market, be that zinc, metallurgical coal, or thermal coal. In Chinese commodities markets, it's been quite quiet in February, following the Lunar New Year holidays. Vanadium pentoxide prices had a bit of a dead cap bounce, and LME copper and nickel prices were up 6% and 5% respectively. 
Our vanadium equity basket was our worst performing equity basket in February, down 12% on the month, with only Bushfeld Minerals shrugging off the negative news flow in the sector. Our cobalt basket was down 7% and our rare earth basket down 6%. Even though our graphite basket was up 3%, we still believe that graphite equities look materially undervalued compared to the commodity. We put the chart that illustrates that in the review every month. Look at it and tell me that that's not the case. In all our other baskets, the equities perform in line with the commodity. That's simply not happening in graphite at the moment. Phew, deep breath. That's all the key news flow for this month in the world of battery minerals. Now I'll let some other people do the talking. We were able to catch up with a number of management teams this month. Our first interview is with David Archer, Chief Executive of AIM-listed Savannah Resources, which is developing the Mina do Barroso project in Portugal. This morning I'm joined by David Archer, he's Chief Executive of Savannah Resources. Welcome, David. Good morning, Matt. And uh, he's going to talk a little bit more about the company and about uh, their recent releases and uh, the strategy that they're employing. So last year was a pretty big year for Savannah. Uh, you published a number of mineral resource upgrades and a very supportive PEA. What's on the radar for you for this year? Well, um, it's going to be another very, very busy year. There were a number of very significant milestones reached in 2018, and we hope to replicate that track record in 2019. So I suppose some of the things we're really looking at doing are you know, sort of clearly uh, continuing to increase uh, the size of the overall mineral resource at Mina de Barroso. And more recently, uh, we've announced some excellent trimming results from the um, Aldea block project, where we uh, received significant intersections in terms of length and, and grade. So we think that's going to be a very accretive project in terms of delivery of um, further uh, mineral resource tonnes to the aggregate uh, project total. So we'll be looking at coming up with a mineral resource on Aldea, an aggregate mineral resource on the Mina de Grosso project. And of course, we're working forward on a number of corporate and uh, commercial milestones. One of the sort of the key aspects will be securing offtake uh, for our production. So we're talking to a whole series of both uh, sort of European and international groups around offtake and in combination with you know, potential corporate partnerships as well. So that's going to be a very interesting uh, space uh, for news uh, for us this year. And of course, in parallel with that, all of the, the project is strictly project-related uh, technical activities. We're framing up an environmental uh, impact assessment um, at the moment, which is um, underway and sort of moving smoothly uh, towards conclusion. That will then play into our overall DFS. Definitive feasibility study. We commissioned uh, Primero uh, last year to undertake that feasibility study. We've uh, recently um, sort of expanded the scope of the, the feasibility to accommodate these extra deposits that we've uh, located in Portugal, both uh, the Pinheiro and Aldea deposits. So it's going to be um, a sort of rather bigger uh, DFS as, as a result. And we hope to have that, uh, those results out uh, later, uh, later this year. So it's going to be a really very active year. Hopefully, uh, lots of milestones uh, reached uh, you know, with the overall, overall objective of being the, the first significant producer of spodumene concentrates in Europe. Okay, brilliant. And just to highlight, you've got a current resource of about 20 million tonnes, is that correct? Yeah, and guiding to you know, a potential target, including an exploration target around about 35 million tonnes. So that would be the sort of largest aggregate uh, spodumene lithium resource in, in Europe by a further added margin. 
Excellent, brilliant. Okay, so uh, moving on to the sort of more um, potential operational side, given the relatively high concentrate production cost versus the peer group, your recent announcement that you could realise larger byproduct credits from quartz and feldspar sales is quite positive. On a per tonne of concentrate basis, on a life of mine, how much would your byproduct credits be likely to contribute? Well, we've been sort of framing up a production of um, around about 300,000 tonnes of feldspar per annum and about uh, 200,000 tonnes of quartz per annum, which in aggregate could bring in around about $114 a tonne in terms of the co-product uh, credit. But absent the, the co-product credits, um, our uh, C1 cash operating costs are you know, very comparable to our industry peers in the, uh, the spodumene sector, and uh, we enjoy a relatively sort of low-cost environment of, uh, of, of Portugal, uh, very close to a major export port uh, of the port of uh, Lixios. So, you know, we're very much in the game uh, with a, a, a robust project with plenty of um, headroom in between our um, cash costs and, um, and even a sort of current day spodumene prices. Brilliant. And what's the uh, market for those uh, quartz and feldspar uh, byproducts? <laughs> yeah. Essentially, into the ceramics industry in Portugal, which is very near to us, and and Spain, of course. There's a very dynamic and sort of vibrant ceramics industry in in Portugal, and in fact, the northern part of Portugal has historically been a significant producer of quartz and feldspar products. So. What we're proposing to do at Mina de Brosso has a sort of a um, is a sort of validated by existing uh, commercial activity. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, and uh, we understand that the Portuguese government is keen to uh, promote the construction of a lithium hydroxide plant, which would obviously be really exciting for your project. Can you give us any idea? Have you had any conversations regarding that? Yeah, well, certainly we've been. Working very closely uh, with the Portuguese government you know, broadly around our project um, over the last year, and they're certainly very keen to promote and support the development of a, um, a more integrated lithium uh, industry in in the country. And they certainly do see the opportunity uh, for a sort of a major uh, industry to be major new industry to be established uh, for the country. And in fact. Portugal really has the opportunity of being perhaps the, the major lithium-producing uh, region uh, for Europe. And, of course, Europe is the largest, if not the sort of second largest, consumer of uh, lithium uh, sort of globally. So it makes really good sense for Europe to be consuming uh, lithium that's actually sort of produced in, in Europe. But specifically, uh, the Portuguese government is looking at releasing a series of um, areas in northern, northern Portugal uh, for under an exploration tender. And one of the sort of the, the key features that they'll, they'll be looking to in or for in these tenders is a sort of line of sight to uh, a refinery uh, development in, um, in Portugal. That would be great for us because uh, that would be you know, very sort of proximate to us. And it really would mean uh, with a refinery in Portugal uh, that you'd have a fully integrated lithium value chain in Europe, which has significant reliability uh, impacts and, of course, is probably um, of almost of sort of geopolitical significance as well. Excellent. Okay. And I mean, everybody's obviously very excited about the outlook for the batteries industry in, in Europe. And um, we've seen both the French and German governments earmark a large amount of funds for taking it forward. Obviously, to do that, we're going to need an intermediates industry here as well as battery manufacturing. Who do you see as the main players in the intermediate space? 
Well, I think, you know, sort of clearly the, you know, we've got the, the, the major uh, Korean players, uh, LG and Samsung, who are building battery plants in, in Europe at the moment. CATL has recently announced that we'll be investing in Europe. And of course, um, we've got uh, Umicore, BASF, um, and uh, Johnson Matthey uh, as well. So there's sort of a, a very wide cast of uh, groups looking to sort of build out a, a very sort of deep, sort of central sort of battery manufacturing layer in Europe uh, to support the development of uh, what may be one of the most globally significant um, EV industries, the, the rollout of um, a series of EV model lines by the Euro- European manufacturers. So it's pretty exciting. It's one of the reasons why we're so sort of pleased that we have a uh, lithium project in Portugal. Took the words right out of my mouth. I think it really is a fantastic um fantastic uh, place to have a lithium project and I think it's going to be quite an exciting time for the European batteries industry. Just to finish off, why do you think that investors should look at Savannah Resources compared to any of the other lithium projects out there? I think because we've got a very robust project. I think uh, that we'll be fashioning uh, some very meaningful offtake arrangements and corporate alignments. I think it, what we're trying to do brings an enormous number of benefits both to our region where we plan to operate for Portugal and um, for Europe itself. Particularly, um, it means that um, Europe uh, will be better placed to sort of meet its uh, greenhouse gas uh, emissions targets. And, but, you know, in a, in a way that's sort of virtuous, um, it provides our project will provide employment. It will, will be a robust project that will uh, deliver uh, great outcomes for our shareholders. And, um, you know, I think um, in aggregate, it's, it's a great project to be involved with. Brilliant. David Archer, Chief Executive of Savannah Resources. Thanks very much. Thanks, Matt. Our next interview is with Jamie Deeth, CEO of TSX Venture-listed graphite developer Eagle Graphite. I'm with uh, Jamie Deeth, who's president and CEO of Eagle Graphite, and also Tori Marshall, who's executive vice president. Thanks, guys, for joining me today. So just on your project, your uh, Eagle Graphite project, you had a 43101 resource of 43.1 million tonnes at 1.3% graphite from the 2018 study, which suggested moving to a PEA. How far along are you with that PEA? Thanks for mentioning that. The number that we tend to focus on is uh, what that translates to in terms of graphite in the ground. And benefit of that of that report is that for PEA purposes, it represents the better part of actually in excess of uh, 500,000 tons of graphite in situ, which happens to be approaching the annual production of graphite for one year around the world. So we think that that establishes that there's adequate resource there. And that's the first part of uh, sort of a foundation that we're building that could make an economic case inside of a PEA. Other important elements of that PEA that we've been working toward, one is showing that the graphite is actually suitable for a number of high value applications. And that's been the purpose of the advanced usage studies that uh, we've carried out and that we've reported on with our news releases. We're also working towards incorporating efficiency initiatives that we've undertaken with respect to um, concentrating feed before we deliver it to our plant. And again, we've reported on those in the past as well. You know, we're looking forward to uh, potentially doing a PEA at some point, 
but we want to make sure that uh, we still have some more information forthcoming with regards to the concentration work and with the suitability for high-value applications. So we invite everybody to uh, keep an eye out for further releases regarding that. Okay. I've seen a number of the usage studies that you've uh, put out over the last sort of uh, few months and which have indicated that the graphite has good suitability for battery applications. Could you just expand for listeners on what's special about the the graphite from this particular deposit that makes it so good for battery applications? Well, happily, it appears that it's uh, good for not just battery applications, but early indications are that uh, we have good suitability for uh, a number of high-value applications. But with regards to batteries in particular, we do have some preliminary results from a few years ago that, uh, that indicated a very high initial reversible capacity and uh, very high, well, easily exceeding the typical specifications for graphite and actually vanishingly close to the uh, theoretical maximum for graphite. So that was a very pleasing result to see. Over the next uh, short period of time, we're expecting some battery cycling results, which we hope will also reinforce uh, the quality of the graphite for the lithium iron ion battery application. In terms of what might make it uh, good for lithium ion batteries, our graphite appears to have very extraordinarily low levels of impurities that are known to be bad for batteries. There's a hit list that uh, battery makers put out, and there, there are certain elements that they do not want to see. And uh, happily, we don't seem to have much in the way of those elements. And in purification trials, we've been seeing our graphite purified to levels that are rarely seen. So the, we appear to have some certain advantages there. So that sort of winds up about my sort of uh, project-specific questions. Just sort of moving a little bit more macro, China's net exports of flake fell off a cliff in the fourth quarter of 2018. Do you see China moving to a net import position? Well, China's graphite consumption for electric vehicles is driving a structural shift in graphite trade patterns. And adding to that, China has clamped down on pollution within its domestic production, and that has that's tend to constrain supplies, in particular for large flake graphite. Now, since we don't really see China reversing either of these things, we think the trend is going to strongly be that China is going to shift from a dominant exporter to uh, a net importer. And we're not really certain what's going to happen in the graphite market as a whole because of that shift. But it's, it's definitely a massive structural shift that's going to have to change the behavior in the graphite market. I think one of the things that we come up against quite a lot on graphite is, is really the shape of the cost curve. And investors don't really seem to understand the juxtaposition of flake and synthetic graphite. They often feel that synthetic graphite could effectively fill in for flake and vice versa. Can you explain why it's unlikely that synthetic graphite could substitute for a significant proportion of flake demand in battery applications in particular? It's something that a lot of people don't realize is that uh, synthetic graphite and flake graphite are remarkably different from each other. If you laid a sample of each side by side, most people wouldn't guess that they're the same material. In fact, they, they are not really the same material. But it just so happens that the lithium-ion battery anode application is one of those few applications where synthetic and flake actually overlap in terms of their applicability. But even within that application, there are some notable differences between the two. In terms of the performance, synthetic graphite discharges a little bit faster than flake graphite, and that can certainly help with acceleration with performance cars and that sort of thing. 
but a flake has better reversible capacity, which tends to improve your battery range. And currently, most of the battery manufacturers balance the trade-offs by blending the two together, although we believe the trend is for using increasing amounts of uh, flake graphite relative to synthetic. One of the other distinctions is that synthetic graphite is actually a petroleum byproduct, usually needle coke, and it's baked at extreme temperatures in order to graphitize the carbon. And this is very energy intensive to manufacture, which and, and it's inherently more expensive than flake graphite, which nature has essentially done the cooking for us. And all, we, all that we have to do is harvest the material from the ground. What we expect as the battery industry scales up and the batteries themselves become cheaper, we expect that the lower base cost of flake graphite to be the driver for an increasing proportion of flake graphite to be used in the anodes. I think a, a key issue is that investors tend to see graphite as a bulk material, but obviously we would say it's more of a chemical, particularly for its usage in, in the battery industry. Could you talk about what the key chemical requirements are for anode-grade material in lithium-ion batteries? Yes, I would want to reinforce what you're saying about graphite not being a bulk material. There are literally hundreds of different applications for graphite, and even within the various subcategories of graphite, natural and synthetic, and then subcategories of natural graphite, of which one is flake, there's such a wide range of uh, applications that each requires its own specific qualities that really it, it's probably uh, it's, it's a bit naive to view it as a single monolithic market. So... And on top of that, of course, uh, every deposit has its own very specific characteristics and the outputs do vary considerably from one deposit to another. And in terms of the, the battery application, if you're talking about the flake graphite that goes into batteries, there is a requirement for very high purity in all battery applications that we know of. And there are certain, there, there are a number of elements, there's a, there's a long list of them, such as vanadium and et cetera, that, that are considered toxic to the battery chemistry. Sometimes it interferes with the electrolyte. Sometimes it just, basically it causes things to go awry inside the battery. And ideally, uh, the graphite that you use for that would be very low in sort of toxic elements. And last question, as a graphite industry professional, and you, you've been involved with graphite for quite a long time, just in case I haven't covered it, but what's the most annoying thing that investors don't get about the graphite sort of investment theme? I think the biggest thing right now is, uh, I think the market is deeply underestimating the likely impact of electric vehicles and the battery industry generally on demand for graphite. Investors appear to have noticed or anticipated requirements, say, in, uh, for lithium, certainly for cobalt, and to some extent, nickel and copper that probably aren't going to be nearly as heavily affected as will be graphite. But I strongly suspect that the market is going to be caught off guard with too little supply at some point as the production of electric vehicles continues to grow exponentially. And as we mentioned, as, as China moves toward a net importer position, which certainly disrupts the status quo from the point of view of many supply chains around the world. Excellent. Okay. Thanks very much indeed for that. So Jamie Deeth, President and CEO of Eagle Graphite and Tori Marshall, Executive Vice President, thanks very much for your time. And that brings us to the end of our roundup for this month. 
You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Thanks for listening. Until next month. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.